Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Yay! Hello, everyone! So, welcome to episode 112 of Bilge Pumps. I guess I'm doing the intro as everyone else stayed quiet. So, today's topics, well, we've got space situation awareness, thanks to Jamie, who, of course, is our resident space expert, CubeSat aficionado, Eek. and some would say mildly obsessive with CubeSats. Proximity fuse weapons are back in the news. We have solid support ships. And just because we didn't want you thinking it had gone away, there is more fitting for, not with. In fact, there is fitting with so little that, honestly, the three of us are not sure why you are building the rest of the fucking ship. just... It's a bit absurd, but let's start off with the space situation. The, the, the thing, the, the, the thing about bilge, about that. The, the good thing about bilge is it goes round and round in cycles, doesn't it? Yes, and it gets and it gets riper and riper every time. Yes, and it sounds so. more like someone's corruption. Oh, I don't know, <laughs> or at least someone's. Yes, well, um, yeah. Look, I mean, you know, it's one of those subjects we keep sort of coming back to is um, basically sometimes you do tend to focus too much on history and I think it distorts your perspective of the modern and one of the aspects of history that you know we're all very aware of is the uh, information warfare side of things knowing what the hell the enemy is doing and um, the safety one get the sense of safety one gets uh, when quote-unquote, behind friendly lines, or at very least approaching friendly lines, as the poor old bomber pilots returning to England um, tended to suffer from. But, um, you know, I don't really know whether there is such thing as safe lines anymore. Um, and I think Ukraine might actually be showing this as well, because there's just nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to... There's nowhere that's, you know, safe anymore. I mean, it was a bit of a shock uh, for Pearl Harbor, obviously. Um, everyone thought that they were well and truly out of range of any form of um, strike. Um, I suppose the same for Toronto. Everyone thought it was fairly well protected in terms of the defenders, at least. Um, but now, you know, we get countries like Australia where they put a large percentage of their um, really, really expensive partially functional F-35s and one airfield and think, oh, we're so far from anywhere, we don't actually need to provide any form of um, defence for it. And by the way, uh, US, why don't you send all your, a whole bunch of your B-52s down here as deterrents? Yeah, it's, it, you see, there is a level going on. It's, this is We're talking about a many thousand ton frigate which is being fitted with four VLS cells. Um, yes. the, the, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, but right now I'm talking about. I'm talking, talking about, about the. the, the I'm talking the about the fact that. Um, I'm talking about the fact that. No, nowhere is safe, and therefore nowhere. can you afford. Uh, so that so therefore you know can you afford to not defend? Have your, you at least got a Patriot <laughs> battery or something for that airfield? Well, no, you see, because you know you'd, you'd think that okay, if you're Belgium and you've got your um, frigate with four 
um, missile tubes, um, you think, oh, well, we're, we're far from anywhere, so therefore we're not actually under any form of threat. But then again, you've got some of the biggest ports in Europe, and um, guess what? You know, everything you do is seen. Everything that moves is, can be targeted. And you know, if it's not going to be a, a submarine like, um, firing some sort of uh, land attack missile, as has been potentially the case since the 1980s, um, it could very well truly be one of those you know, Zircons or cruise missiles. So yeah, the, 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 what I'm trying to suggest is that, you know, your general politician, your general member of the public is, you know, are aware of, of, in terms of strategy of, you know, World War II era thinking and World War II era threat levels and ranges and operations and yeah, it's because it's on TV, it's because it's on the movies, it's because it's in the books, it's because people like you and me, um, you know, focus on it out of a, an aspect of fascination. But, you know, does it give these, um, you know, people that have a lot of say in whether or not money is set aside to defend that airfield or that port um, that's supposedly you know, 5,000 kilometres away from enemy lines, is, is it giving them a distorted sense of reality? And how do we break through this? Well, it's the case of... There is, in my experience, two forms of self-delusion. There is the self-delusion which you do because, frankly, it makes you feel safe. And there is a self-delusion you do because it means you can justify spending on something else. And when it comes to defence, that happens a lot. It's a case of, well, you know, this isn't going to happen. We're not really. It's one of the things I, support, I, I talk about during the Cold War a lot. During the central part of the Cold War, we lose a lot of the idea of strategic thinking, a lot of the, a, a lot of the analysis, a lot of the think, a real thinking in depth about warfare and logistics and understanding. Why? Because war is going to go nuclear within seven days and then we're all going to be dead. So there's no point worrying about anything else. There is no point thinking about do we have enough ships for a long war because it's going to be over in a week. There is no point having this. There's no point having that because it's going to be over in a week. And now you have... And so that changes the thinking. And now you have, well, the Cold War ended. So that's the end of the total annihilation of nuclear weapons. So we don't have to worry about that threat. And then it's wars of choice, because only wars are going to happen for the West if the West chooses them. So what it, you don't have to worry about defending anything, because it's only going to happen if you choose to fight a war, because no one's going to dare to fight you because you're so powerful. But the thing is, they're forgetting that the reason no one would dare to fight them at the end of the Cold War was because they were the last man standing yeah. with the huge frigging armed forces. And that was it. Once you get rid of those armed forces, it's not some right of anointation that you're always going to be yeah. so scary that no one's going to want to fight you. And we know, we, we, we know, we know yeah. this, but the point is, is that yeah, let's take it down to the next level then. Um, all those people in San Diego thinking they're safe. All those people in um, uh, Newport you know, thinking they're safe. Everyone mm -hmm. thinking that all those people in Portsmouth, even though they were bombed repeatedly in World War II, mm -hmm. thinking they're safe. All those people in Sydney and in Perth thinking we're so far away from anywhere that 
why the hell do we need to protect these billions of dollars worth of assets? Um, when, you know, it's once upon a time, you know, in the 80s and 70s and 90s, even the 90s, you could count on your hand the number of times a spy satellite would pass over your uh, remote uh, military base mm-hmm. um, in a week. Now, you know, we've gone, it's, it's, it's so easy to put up the most basic Earth observation satellites. And these most basic Earth observation satellites carry multi-spectral cameras that can see through cloud, rain, hail, the lot. They can't because they don't just rely on visual light. They don't just rely on infrared. They go through the whole spectrum. And you know you can see through um, a rainstorm whether the ship is that's um, poaching in your um, f- uh, fishing exclusion zone is made of fiberglass and, w- or, and or whether or not it's um, been recently painted because of the kind of, of reflections you can get f- um, f- from a multi-spectral camera nowadays. So these things are cheap. These things are dirt- are small. They're easy to put up, and. It, you don't need a GPS system functioning to provide a pinpoint strike now on that hangar full of F-35s, that wharf in the middle of Sydney you know, with your um, ultra-expensive LHDs or brand-new nuclear-powered submarine, even if it is 5,000 kilometres away from anywhere, because it's being observed all the time and not it's 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 not um, hard for that information to be converted into something to act upon. So it's it's it, it because you know it's easy to to dismiss because it's not been part of the thinking for so long. Um, but it should be because it's here and it's now. It's not like this is happening in ten years' time. This, it's not like this is happening in five years' time. These things are so easy now to put up. With you don't even need to put up a balloon, put it into fully fully into orbit. You just need a suborbital um, CubeSat or NanoSat these days. And okay, you can see it being launched, but what are you going to do about it? You know, it, c- it comes back down to that um, cost and effect thing. Are you going to fire off um, a one of your very expensive, very precious um, anti-ballistic missile? missiles at something that's clearly got a, a, a ballistic trajectory that's not going to land on Sydney, <laughs> um, but it is going to overpass Sydney. So you know, you're not going to do that, are you? But it is going to re- reveal everything that's in that, in that harbour. So what are you going to do? Every time a satellite goes overhead, um, surge your ships out the sea, well, you'll be doing that multiple times a day, not multiple times a week or a month. So smoke pots? Well, they're not going to work these days. Not with a multi-spectral camera. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can probably not unless you uh, do a new generation smoke pot. I mean, oh, something yeah. which has some really cancer, really carcinogenic <laughs> stuff in it, probably. Because let's be honest, it would work. Uh, whatever's going to work is also going to kill quite a lot of people, especially when it's in the middle of a, yeah, a, a city like Sydney. Um, but then again, hey, you know, this, this is the thing. This is my point. I mean. 
what do we do? The, the point is, is that a new Pearl Harbor is going to be a much more devastating and much more different strike than the strike on Pearl Harbor, because you're not going to have the need to hide a carrier strike group at sea for days before it gets within range to deliver its, you know, payload. Um, you, now it can be, um, you know, an H6K or H6J carrying um, long-range missiles, which can be guided to within um, you know, uh, their own sensor range quite easily and adequately by any number of satellites that you put up. It's, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to space domain awareness, I had the um, good fortune of participating in the um, international, not participating, but observing the international SACT. These um, basically, it's, it's, it's an awareness um, space awareness training program, which involved three different um, units, the Pacific cell, the Meridian cell, which is Europe and London, and the Pacific and the um, Americas cell. So they basically ran for 48 hours where they tried to track everything that was going on in orbit that was of any moderate form of interest. And just to make things interesting, throw in a few simulated um, events and just um, distortions of what's going on, and also they happened to launch Artemis right in the middle of the thing, so that made it just it made it a bit more interesting as well. So it, you know, you've got these little objects sipping around up there, only a couple of hundred kilometers above our heads, but when you're talking about a ten centimeter square box, two hundred fifty kilometers above your head, and if you're looking from the ground up through the various layers of atmospheric distortion and clouds and all the rest of it. You don't really get much information out of it. Um, it's, it's very hard to point your sensors at any particular section of the sky and pinpoint um, you know, what is what, what's it doing, and where's it going and why. It, it, it's something that involves basically the, the entire effort of the United States NORAD system plus all of the new um, commercial operators even down to um, you know experimental companies that are doing things like buying time off of these um, inf these um, uh, satellites that carrying their carry their um, multi-spectral cameras you know, and they are, they only turn them on when they pass over the country of their origin which means that two two-thirds of their time they're actually not being used so during the two-thirds of their time they say well can you just tilt your little satellite using your internal gyroscopes to this in this direction at this particular time take a few snaps and hopefully we'll catch a russian um, snooper sat maneuvering in that snapshot to see what the hell it's why the hell it's uh, pursuing a u.s spy satellite so it, it, it's becoming very complicated it's, and it's becoming very busy and the the, the, the trickle down implications of this I just think uh, complete change warfare when you've got that degree of um, situational awareness pointed at the ground and conversely, not so much situational awareness when you're pointing up to see whether or not something's going over your head. And that was always something they could do back in the 80s. You, know, you could chuck that tarpaulin over the, your um, F-117 prototype so that the Russian satellite or Chinese satellite that passed over once a week couldn't see it can't do that now 
you can't even do that now commercially. You get there's a massive open source intelligence community out there who are you know buying up subscriptions to Maxar and all these other kind of um, commercial satellite photograph providers. And not only are they following the uh, war in Ukraine step by step, you know, <laughs> they're all zeroed in on Area 51. They're all zeroed in on just about every port and every facility in the world. And, you know, China, you know, even myself looking today at Google Earth, looking at the uh, construction facilities for the um, um, Chinese nuclear submarines, because thanks to, I think it's Tom Chugat on Twitter, who pointed out that uh, there seems to be an assembly of new um whole sections that could potentially be the next generation boomer for uh, China. So, you know, if, if that's the stuff that's in the public domain, what the hell is available in the military domain? And even more so, when you mix the two, um, I can see that uh, you can get a very complete picture of what's going on. So how do you defend a Portsmouth? How do you defend a Pearl Harbor? How do you um, defend a Sydney from that degree of perpetual analysis? You have two mm -hmm. options. You have two options, really. Um, you either come with a way of very cheaply engaging those systems which is going to be frigging important difficult because it's the only system like lasers, yes, which will blind, uh, uh, and it doesn't have to be kill lasers. It has to. It could be blinding lasers because you can overload and blind a camera of a laser. Um, we do know that we've done it in labs. Doing it in reality, though, with thermal bloom and all the joys of the atmosphere. Ooh, Drac, do you want to give an odds on making that work anytime soon? Well, it's kind of. It's kind of a, a, a trade-off because, you know, you could probably, I mean, I could probably build a laser array out of available commercial parts that could blind a low orbit satellite. It's not that difficult mm -hmm. because the thing is you've got to, you don't have to permanently blind it. Now, permanently burning out the, or like physically damaging the sensors, that would, that is more complex. That is something that, I don't know if they can do it. It's probably some kind of military thing, but you don't have to permanently destroy the satellite's capability to observe. You just have to make it so that its photograph of your port is just a massive purple bloom, um, you know, massive massive light overload, and that is entirely possible to do. It's in you know, I've got a one watt purple laser just sitting around. Um, it, I love uh, the way it says, I've got a one watt purple, purple laser just sitting around. You know, yeah. There's a whole story with um, the Surrey police and Dorking, and you know, people wondering what the giant purple lightsaber in the sky on Box Hill was that from about five or six years ago. But let's not go into that. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, I thought that might be you. I thought that might be you. But the thing okay, is, you, you have the. Um, I know it sounds a little bit sci-fi because it's basically taken out of the, the the Death Star, but you don't need if you want to project a ten watt or a hundred watt laser beam into the sky, you don't need a single ten or hundred watt projector. You you get ten of these one watt lasers, you can collimate that beam. You you can folk you know like not exactly like the the Death Star, but you know in a similar way to the way the Death Star has all those tributary lasers that focus into one super laser. Um, 
with a, a little bit more technology, you can put multiple laser beams into a single more powerful one. I mean, it's done all the time. Um, so, yeah, and then project that up at the passing satellite. Your main problem is, at that point is, you say, there's going to be some thermal bloom, but that comes down to what spectrum you use on the laser um, to a certain extent, also where you put it. And now this is this is going to be a bit of a problem because, of course, ports, by their very nature, tend to be at sea level. <laughs> so if you happen to have a port that has a socking great mountain in the background, um, that's really handy because that'll take you through a lot of pollution and the lower, more dense parts of the atmosphere. But if you don't, uh, and let's face it, the ridge at the back of Portsmouth is not that tall. You, you're going to have. It does to have, a... have a daring class radar sitting on top of it. Though. Yeah, but you're going to have to have a quite a powerful laser to to just to kind of you know, as I say, not, not damage but blind an overpassing satellite. The problem is you've got to invent the thing. You've got to somehow persuade everyone that it's a good idea to have a really powerful laser array over pretty much every well installed at every military base you want to conceal, and then you have to persuade people that you know turning the sky into something that resembles a disco is in any way shape or form safe because of course you have in stuff that's going around in those intervening layers of atmosphere like airliners and um this is a Sorry, that and that is his computer telling him that he should not start giving away their plan for world yeah. domination. But the, 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 <laughs> in, in all seriousness, it's like a lot of ports are also large cities. So they have airports and stuff. And, you know, what's the flight safety regimen of airliners if there's this gigantic column of light going up into the sky? Now, obviously, you can do uh, non -laser, lasers in the non-visible spectrum um, and the, the light that you see is the light interacting with particulates in the atmosphere. So it's not the full power, but it still is an issue. Um, and you, I think you'd enter this kind of response counter response thing, because you, you could make a, you know, a cube sat that will last two or three orbits and then deorbit itself at probably just over a hundred miles. But that would be relatively cheap and easy to build. You'd probably get a commercial off the shelf, you know dslr with some heating elements and a really really big like thousand pound zoom lens and you could probably get some decent info off of that but as i say it'll be a like a a five thousand dollar satellite that lasts for three days and then dies um but blinding that is one thing but then someone goes well okay well i'll build a ten thousand dollar satellite that stays up for two months and orbits at 150 or 200 miles at which point now you've got another problem because you it's not you've got you've got diffusion as well and tracking and everything so tracking is going to be is, is a big thing yeah, but, yeah. Um, I mean, a laser okay well when you're considering that your, your camera looking down at you is multispectral anyway mm. are, you, are you only going to blind part of it well, this this is this is the thing. This is why I say it's like a response counter response because the the single cheapest and easiest thing would, as as I said, be basically a box with a particularly powerful Wi-Fi transmitter and a heated DSLR with a zoom lens flying around. That's really cheap and easy, but it's an optical only, you know, visual wavelength only thing that's relatively easy to counter. But the most next stage, things, I think I can say, you know, right, most of the things going up now mm. are 
um, the multispectral cameras because yeah. they are getting to the point, at least commercially, mm-hmm. as being as readily available as a decent SLR. Yeah, and this um, is the thing. It's the, it's this escalation. You can blind the cheap and easy stuff relatively cheap and easily, but if someone says, right, we're putting a multispectral one on, now that solution doesn't work. Now you have to come up with something else. Um, so, so I'm starting to think you know, the only real solution here is huge tinfoil tents. Maybe the Japanese course, had the right idea with the Yamato shipyard. And what did they do there? <laughs> they just built a gigantic great covering over it. You know, well, you that's what we've the, done to our yards. If you, you have think building about that, a lot of the stuff would just be Yeah, you have building sheds for boats and uh, yeah. small ships and everything. And the Japanese went, yes, but we will have a building shed for a 65,000 ton battleship so no one can see what we're doing. Well, you couldn't see them build it, but again, no. you know, as soon as it was out in the harbour. Um, yes, yes, but uh, but this is the this is the thing. It's like you, you I th- I think, and you can't. Let's like, face it, you can't just roll the shed down the road a bit. No, and I think this is this is kind of the the issue of it's not so much what the intelligence gathering capabilities of a small cubesat or similar ca- are. It's more the fact that I mean that that intel will be useful, but it's more the fact that if if someone wants it, their stuff to stay secret, they can do so. But how much cost is that compared to the cost of half a dozen CubeSats? If someone's, if some, if you know, if, if your solution to it's, we don't it's want the, the enemy, yeah, this we, is we the whole thing. It's, it's the drone equation again, but it's, yeah. it's, it's it's the drone equation applied to space, getting the high ground, being able to see what your opponent is doing, yeah, and and doing so in a sustained way. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, I mean, at one level, it's just simply seeing where things are but again as another level um it can't, i can't imagine it being all that much harder to provide that degree of guidance needed for a a, a long-range form of weapon mm. now well yeah because it's, if it's a live view then you don't need then you can communicate that to incoming long-range weaponry and just go well you know yesterday this destroyer was moored over here but mm. as of Two minutes ago, it's over here. And, and I mean, oh, now it's moving. <laughs> and that's one of the things that people are saying. Oh, it takes time for a, um, you know, for a for a cruise missile or a, mm-hmm. even a ballistic missile to get from point A to point B, especially when it's thousands of kilometers. And that gives us time to to move. Well, how long does it take to power up a modern destroyer? <laughs> Longer. Well, depend. It depends what readiness state they're in. But you know, oh. it could it could be five minutes. It could be five hours. But um it depends how 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 far down the uh you know the machinery has been taken yeah so uh, okay so theoretically you can move it from your wharf over to another wharf mm. but as i say you've got that um one of those cues tabs mm. moving over as as you're moving it so you, you know um that's just a bit more guidance that can be relayed yeah, so again it- you know i guess ultimately though the thing is, is you can't really stop them from getting this information. No. But can you stop them from using it? And I guess that means rather broad spectrum blanket jamming across large parts of the globe, which, as you say, kind of will disturb the local neighbourhood's Wi-Fi. Yeah. Yeah, and this is kind of it's. It, it, I think yeah, as you say, it's kind of this drone question. It's the catch twenty two of. You know, if you want to hide your fleet, you could do it. You could build a bunch of massive P-51 
sheds to hide them in, or if you're particularly villainous, you know, dig out a mountain lair like they did for some subs. But one, that means that, well, now everyone knows the shed is there. The only question is, is it empty or not? So, you know, you now have a specific target to go after. And two, it's going to cost you a fortune to build. And if you've got lots of CubeSats, it may not even be all that much helpful because with a, you know, with the old school, big, heavy recon sats, they pass over a port. There's nothing there. They pass over the, with, you know, six hours a day later, there's something there. Fantastic. So in that situation, you'd be like, okay, well, we'll bring the ship in, in that window and it goes in its shed and then it passes the satellite pass over. Well, the port is still empty. We don't know if that shed is open or not. Whereas if you've got, you know, in a time of heightened tension, if you've got a CubeSat that's either sitting there or is, you know, part of, there's one part passing over every, yeah. yeah, one passing over every ten minutes, you physically can't get a ship in that quick. The only, I think the only one, the only ship that would be theoretically capable of being hidden that way under that level of surveillance would be submarines, and that's mostly because they could approach submerged, assuming that the water isn't nice and clear, <laughs> at which point it's like, oh, there is a submarine-shaped silhouette 20 foot down. I wonder what that could be. Um, but And also, you know, your multispectral cameras can see a little bit deeper than um, your standard as well. Not necessarily hugely so, but mm. at least, at least um, you know, that they'll be able yeah. to pull out the, um, the different... Well, everything from different sea states through yeah. to. I think you reach the level at which I start to start. I start to think about dispersion basing. Well, you can't really dispersion base a fleet. Well, <laughs> you can't, you can't you put are... Type Forty Five in the Forest of Dean. <laughs> no, you can't do that. But what I'm talking about is: do we have to start thinking about having? mobile basing units that can turn up in any smaller port or any port and set up a naval base to resupply a ship there instead of it having to go back into Portsmouth? Well, at the very least, you know, um, given that even before the ability to track these moving ships became so much um, more viable, they were able to pinpoint the locations of those piers and docks um, with very great accuracy. And uh, they still can. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, just as you talk about the need to hot base your F-35s, well, that is if you're not Australia. Australia is just going to... You actually have to have have bases to be able to hot base an F-35. Basically, the British term hot basing an F-35 is based on the fact that two of our bases float. (laughs) Well, yeah, um, yes, they need air conditioning and... um, yeah, DC power and uh... it's it, it, it's amazing. You start discussing. So, how many facilities do we actually have that can hot base an F thirty five? Well, we have two. I think it was. I think the person who was discussing with me, and this was. Uh, please note, if anyone's listening, the person discussing this with me uh, is a politician, so they should. Uh, hopefully, they don't know anything secret. So, I'm going to repeat what they said. Um, but no, it was two level two sites which can basically they can operate out of for a short time we of course have one main base which can do all the supplies and maintenance and we have two aircraft carriers well you could you could in you could in theory um run of which one is currently being fixed well i I was just thinking in, in theory you could go back to the good old days that they planned for the harrier um and just go okay well we're going to base them off of roads because they have retail capability the only problem of course being that 
um, with the, the power output of an F-35, you can hot base them off of that stretch of road once, and then you have a very big <laughs> repair bill. Um, I mean, on the one hand, we have plenty of motorways. You on the other hand, I it. don't really want to see what happens if an F-35 is trying to do a short takeoff run and hits uh, the kind of pothole you typically find on the M-40. <laughs> Uh, we have to start doing what way. the Swedish and the Swiss do with their roads in nicest way. I think it's the Maintain Swedes them. who really spe- no. Well, the Swedes <laughs> have special have roads which they've specially modified so that they can take the deal the the issues of an aircraft taking off them. Although yeah, the, their the, aircraft are the Gripen, and that's a, a a little bit different taking off than an F thirty five. Well, that there's also the slight problem of the, of at least in the UK, you know, given that apparently takes like four people six months to resurface a single lane of the m3 in standard tarmac because everybody's hopelessly corrupt and lazy um if you handed the typical public sector contractor a, um, a deal these days that said right we want you to resurface three dozen areas of the motorways in the uk for a mile stretch in you know aircraft runway scale capability tarmac it would probably shut down the uk motorway system until about 2050 because it would be done by bob bob jim well actually no bob and jim would be back in the um in in the porter cabin drinking coffee all day while you know stanislav and igor um the uh, are the ones only ones doing any actual work and two guys can't really do that much work even with machine help because the company's too cheap to pay for anyone extra to do it. So, yeah, brilliant idea. Not really going to happen in, in the UK, unfortunately. I mean, it's at least hot, in, in Australia, you have to cope with the fact that your your roads do actually heat up to a fairly large degree every year. So yeah, <laughs> you're you're coming to you're planning on coming to Australia next year. Yeah, you, you might experience you might experience the condition of our roads when you when you when you get here. He, so, he's uh, keen on driving. I'm keen on avoiding the roads as much as physically possible. Uh, yeah, look, you know, it, the one with relatives there is going. No, keep me away from the Australian roads. Uh, look, you know, it, oh. it the roads aren't great, but yeah, you know, I've got to confess that yeah, you know, if you want to see a place and you've got a bit of leeway in what you're doing, the best way to go is by road for sure. This mm. sitting on a plane is uh, yeah, not exactly the the best way to experience a country. But you know, getting back to our discussion of you know hot porting. Okay, so you want to scramble your ships out of Portsmouth, you want to scramble your ships out of Pearl Harbor, and you'll want to put them in some remote place that might not be looked at by a CubeSat until No, I want tomorrow. to spread them out so I don't have more than I don't have more than one ship in per place. That's the thing is I don't want to have uh, okay, this- yes, I you know, I don't want to have a scenario where there's a huge concentration on my fleet which makes an attack worthwhile. Well, but when you consider that you've got how many Type Twenty Sixes at the moment, we've got one ish. Zero? No, so, it's not even hit the water. When, we've got zero. When, when you get your eight, or is mm-hmm. it nine? Eight at the mm-hmm. moment. I'm hoping for um, nine. One of them will be a worthwhile target. So maybe they'll have a chance to survive if you put all eight into one place. Well, I think this is the thing. It's 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 a reflection of the fact that 
with these very small, and I hate to use the word because it gets massively overused these days, but disruptive technologies, it opens up a whole tree of, as I was saying earlier, response and counter response, because yeah, potentially response, um, you know, put the fleet across multiple different ports, one ship per port. The, the counter to the counter, however, is that now it's one ship on its own and one ship on its own is much easier to overwhelm with a strike. You know, if somebody, let, let's face it, okay, let's put it for a UK scenario, nightmare scenario, some genius builds an SSGN with you know, a couple of hundred missiles aboard and decides it wants to take out the, the Royal Navy in Portsmouth. Let's say that we've actually managed to fix the Type 45s and there's three of them and a couple of Type 26s in port. So you've got 200-ish surface-to-air missiles plus countermeasures, etc., etc., etc. If someone's got, you know, an Oscar that they bought off of Russia, you might be able to defend yourself if, um, you know, if somebody can, you know, provide a radar picture that extends outside of the port. Maybe you have, if there's one ship coming or going, it can data link to all the others and use them as missile barges. You might be able to pull off some kind of defense that doesn't involve everything blowing up. Mm. Conversely, if you've distributed your fleet in response to the recon that's telling everyone where you are, then that same SSGM probably only has to volley fire a couple of dozen of its payload into one port. And there's, mathematically speaking, nothing that a frigate can do to stop that. You know, even if it gets one shot, one kill with every single missile that it carries, you know, two, three dozen missiles, physically more than what it's got on board, that's it. So long, farewell after you then and good night. At which point the, um, you know, your theoretical Oscar or Oscar type SSGN can pop along and do that two or three, four times to different ports. You're now down three to four major surface combatants in a scenario where if they'd all been concentrated at one point, you might not might not have lost any of them. Um, but you might also have lost all of them because, you know, someone could just have turned up with two SSGNs. <laughs> so it, it, it's, um, and then of course you've got, you know, counters to those counters. Do you put radar and, and de missile defense batteries at all your dispersed ports? Uh, at which point at some point along that line, you've turned each of your dispersal ports into a major fortified strong point which might be good for overall defense purposes, but it can cost an absolute fortune. <laughs> um, so, so let me let's get back to the to the to the point. Well, not to the point. But that is a very good point. But yeah, I'm just thinking in terms of Sevastopol at the moment. Okay, mm -hmm. basically the Russian fleet has got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. They've moved it up a, a, a narrow waterway to thinking that they could protect their um, amphibs um, from Ukrainian drones because after the drone boat attacks a few weeks ago out in the open water, but no, they can still be reached even there. And that's because they know where they are, they know when they are, and they can guide their weapons to get there. Now, does that have to involve satellites? No, it doesn't. Ukraine has got a few satellites, and I'm sure that they've got enough currency still floating around the country to buy access to up-to-date um, snapshots from the various commercial operators. So, yeah, how can Russia hide its um, rather battered-looking Black Sea fleet at the moment? Well, the answer is it can't. Mm. It, the yeah. answer is, really, 
at that point the only other alternative is turtle up you know stick s400 batteries and mm. and all your other shorter medium range missile batteries at every single point you possibly can you know go old school build like legitimate star fort style fortifications at the entrances to the harbor and stick rapid you know pull a few cash tan or something off of uh something you're scrapping and put them on on elevated hard points so they can cover physically cover the entrances what you're describing there sounds an awful lot like those um islander fortresses in the south china sea Mm. yeah yeah the the thing is that with the island fortresses they they only have to be a temporary thing that withstands a certain level of attack the problem the russians have got with the black sea fleet is you know they don't have multiple places to go they you you know if 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 china builds an island fortress yeah it's the same principle but on a smaller cheaper scale because if if the u.s concentrates enough firepower in a theoretical u.s china war to overwhelm and destroy one of them it's like okay well that's a tragedy let's move on to number two or number seven or number 11 Mm -hmm. um so you there's a there is an upper limit for your your costs on that whereas for the russians you know if if they end up you know, if they, if they only have one or two bases, they have to fortify the heck out of those bases because if you lose, you've you've lost. You have nowhere. You have nowhere to go. You have nowhere to run. And but it, it kind of it, again, it becomes this escalating game of response counter response where you might end up with you know a doom fortress for the Black Sea Fleet with you know being able to withstand almost any attack with a slight caveat that the one attack that gets through is going to have to hit you with such overwhelming force there probably won't be much of the port left um yeah look i mean uh, uh, to me it seems to keep coming back to the ships themselves um i don't think that it's very efficient to turn every port into you know a death star mm-hmm. um both in terms of you know, the, the guns and defences and um, radar and, and satellite blinding lasers. But, you know, is this another capability that is not going to be built into each and every ship? Does this mean that building your ship for but not with those um, defensive systems uh, is even more of a calamity now? And does it mean that your next class of ship will have to have some rather interesting skyward looking technology for jamming, blinding, um, you know, concealing your um, vessel just enough to make it um, harder to hit. Now, you don't have to blind, you know, um, the uh, opponent's view from horizon to horizon. You just need to have a, a certain few hundred meters radius around you that becomes a a probability bubble where you could be but they don't know that you are there and you know that means that um you to saturate that bubble you're going to have to fire five six seven times as many weapons into that space in the hope that one will get a lock in time to um actually attack the target so you know um I'm just thinking that we really do need to start thinking in terms of you know, space observation and that kind of guidance of being something that you need to build your ships 
to accommodate, not just your ports. Because then, yeah, your hot basing will work. Your um, type 26 or type 31 that has some form of um, you know, umbrella system can park you know, um, in a nice little um, estuary for a while with a <clears throat> with with all those various um, supply ships that your navy's been um, quite cleverly stockpiling and building up over um, decades to keep it going and running. And um, when once you know it's it's inevitable that's going to be found there, but it might be able to shoot down the first wave and blind the second wave. Or alternatively, it's, it's a case of. It's we were talking about the laser system earlier, and I think more and more when I think about these laser systems, I think they probably end up having to be ship based to have the power, etc., and get away with the exact criteria which uh, which um Drac pointed out that you know the local politicians, especially public, less so, but probably still quite virulently. Will be worried about it, and will worry well, that not, it's not, going to cause the troubles with legitimate not, not, reason. Not if you sell them on the basis that you can put on a free light show every Christmas. <laughs> you know what's worrying about that, Jamie? Is <laughs> you not only said it a straight face, <laughs> but I'm actually think you might be right. But we'll leave <laughs> that to one side. It's just it's. It's complicated. It's the, the, the reality is we do not have a world which is fit for nuance. Nuance and context do not get an airing these days. And explaining that sometimes the choice is not between the better, the good choice and the bad choice, between the least bad option, is a difficult one to make. And governments don't like explaining it. And... Quite a lot of the public, if we're be honest, don't like hearing it, especially when it's about something which we don't care about. The amount of times I can talk to people, if it's something they care about, they're passionate about, they will understand it's the choice between the least worst options. But the moment you start talking about a subject which is not their personal thing or not something they particularly rate that highly, it'll either be, you, oh, you either go for the best option or, you, or you, you've got to go for the best option. That's the only option. You've got to find a good option. And the options we're talking about, it's either you leave your fleet undefended and your forces undefended, and then you watch all the money you're wasting, you're spending on them get destroyed. Or you defend them, which is going to cost money. Or you decide to not have a fleet in the first place, in which case, good luck, you're probably going to get taken over by the first power which really decides it wants to. Which... Is going to sound terrible, but here is the thing. There are countries in the world which have eschewed having an armed forces, and they have managed to get over it and do it very well. Most of those countries that do it, do it <laughs> under the umbrella of other countries which are larger and able to go, yeah, you invade them, we'll muller you, so just go, don't do it. We really don't want to get involved, but if you're going to, we will. Please don't. Don't. We don't want to do the paperwork. That'll be more complicated than actually the operation. And they can afford to do that because but, of those other countries. But the thing leave. is... Yeah. Okay. No, sorry. I was interrupting. It's a, it's, it's, it's a problem that you... So if you can't go... You can't justify really going the we're not going to spend any money on defence and disband our forces route if you are a sensible nation. 
not in the current world, not in the world we live in. Maybe there'll be a future hypothetical world or real world which come to reality where the world is entirely peaceful and everyone can get rid of their armies and their navies and their air forces and we'll all live in happy and harmless, happy harmony, harmoniously. I look, if that happens, I am a military historian. I will be the happiest man alive because I have spent my lifetime studying what happens when we have to have armed forces and they have to fight. But so the, my point being, though, I doubt that's that, going to happen. So we're going to have to spend the money. But, but my point being, though, is that the money isn't there. Uh, yeah, that's repeatedly being shown. And, is it? Or is it know, just not they don't want things, to spend it? And yeah, but you, you, the reality is it doesn't, it, there's always going to be conflicting priorities. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, we, we, it's not a monopolar world. You've got to live it. You know, there's so many different things you've got to deal with, and it's never going to change. Not, not for anyone. Not even for Putin. Or was he? Now, but does it mean that surface ships are obsolete? I mean, yeah. This we're talking about dramatic changes to you know every aspect of their operation now. Um, yeah, the, it's not just. Oh, the aircraft carrier can't hide over the horizon and launch a strike anymore, like it did during World War Two. It's you know, now you can't send your your frigate out on the anti-submarine patrol and it not be noticed from the moment you leave your port anymore. It's you can't send a convoy escort with your convoy and your enemy won't know its exact composition every step of the way anymore. It's, I think there's the, the, a the few... whole the, you know, the, the ability, sorry, the factor of not being seen and the factor of uncertainty has always been a very major component in naval warfare history. Um, everything from Graf Schwey through to HMS Illustrious Raiding Toronto, um, through to the strength of, you know, the, the escorts around the convoy on the way on PQ-17. You know, these, these things are, are, are things that we, are so baked into our thinking that we still think that way, we still plan that way, we still design our ships that way, we still plan to use our ships that way, but it's irrelevant. It, it doesn't I work dis any I disagree with some of those things. So let's start off with, I'll work backwards because there's some points I want to make. Taranto, the Italians knew the Royal Navy was at sea. The Royal Navy, uh, Cunningham wasn't basing on the Italians not knowing he was <laughs> at sea and what he was doing. Yeah. He was basing them having so many different reports of different things going on that he wasn't practicing. He wasn't practicing secrecy. He was practicing information overload. In many ways, yes. he was actually possibly providing a more accurate operation for how you should conduct modern warfare than people who try and hide. Because instead of hiding, he was hiding in plain sight. He was going, "Look, there's so much activity going on. Figure out what I'm doing. I dare you." And the, reasons why, the ships he had. and the reason but, why know. the Italians couldn't do it was because they didn't have the sensor capacity to do so. And Cunningham took an informed gamble, knowing the limitations of the technology that he had, knowing the limitations of the technology that the Italians had, yeah. and the time frames involved. And the equation that came back said, the chances of you sending your sole aircraft carrier up north of Malta to just off the coast of Italy with an escort of no more than um, a couple of cruisers and a couple of destroyers will be 
you know, th that equation would be uh, well and truly worth the risk. Well, but that still took half a day sailing to get there and half a day sailing to get away from mm -hmm. there. And Illustrious was incredibly lucky that the politics between the, uh, the Regia Aeronautica and the um, Italian Navy were such that they didn't speak to each other and that um, um, Illustrious was able to leave the scene of the crime without being spotted until it was too late. So that's... Well that that equation has changed completely now has it it's now you see the thing is every time i hear this sort of people saying the information intelligence on one side is just so, the capability on one side is just so great that the other side's terrible and i sit there and go but we don't hear about the other side we don't You've hear got, about much the, about the, the electronic the difference warfare is, in the uk we the don't hear is, much about those things the difference the difference is is that in that 24 hour period 36-hour period that Illustrious was moving up towards Toronto and then leaving after the strike, there were two, three, four data points for the Italian Navy to screw up, to mm. confuse and to ignore and to fight over. In a modern attempt scenario along those lines, there would be two or 300 data points. So the weight of evidence would far... Um, would, would, would much more likely swamp that kind of confusion and um, political um, shenanigans because it's not going to be something that's sitting on the desk of a... Yes, but... It's not something that's going to be sitting on the desk of a field commander for, for eight hours or something. It's going to... He'll get one copy, but in the meantime, there's a whole suite of other sensors that go through other chains of command and other chains of personal and um, you know command contact that will, will will flow around that roadblock. So yeah, the ability your ability to choke at all is is you, you, the choke points are greatly diminished. Yes, but you you're again you're focusing on illustrious. There was also Arc Royal going after Genoa. There yeah, was all yeah. the convoys going on. The, the point was that all of these were providing different data points, and it was perfectly reasonable for the Royal Navy's fleet to be out to be covering the convoy. So it yeah. provided a legitimate reason for the Royal Navy to be out, etc. So apart from attacking Toronto. And of course, attacking Toronto, the Italians were presuming there wouldn't be attack on Toronto. Yeah. And then you have the disputes between the politics. And by the way, if you, modern forces have just as many political disputes going course, on over information and all these things. Now, the point is, I was going to make through and go through, is he's supplying all this information and he's working within the technological framework of the time. A modern mm -hmm. commander would do just the same. They'd work within the technological framework of the time. Now, yes, we can talk about CubeSats. We can talk about all these things because they are publicly known and they are talked about and their capabilities are quite If you try and get the Royal Navy or any of modern West Navy to talk about the electronic warfare suites, which take up a huge chunk of every ship they build, they will look at you and go, really? Oh, amazing. And go walk on. They won't tell you about them. So the point is, either they are putting in a whole load of boxes for no reason because they just want to take up space and look pretty, or you mean they're like actually those, putting... You mean like those uh, mine detection units that were sold uh, to the uh, army in um, Iraq? Yeah, that's the, the, that. That's yeah. a very different process. We'll leave <laughs> yeah, that one to that, one the side. Homeopath, the homeopathic uh, mind detection system. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the divining one. If you dissolve no, a let's go back. One, one mine in several billion tons of uh, earth, then it becomes a more effective detector. <laughs> it's I think that's how it but, works, isn't it? Yes. But the, po the point is, 
you go through these things and you go back to the Black Sea. Now, I know we're making a lot about satellites, but there's also another problem for the Russians. And I would point this out with you with them attacking Ukraine. And this was the big problem for them attacking Ukraine. If you consider the number of the, of the population of Ukraine and the population of Russia and the way they intermix during the Soviet era, and you consider today the number of Ukrainians who can speak Russian fluently like they are Russians, and you consider the quality of Ukrainian intelligence forces versus possibly the quality of Russian intelligence forces, if, if we consider they put their intelligence services on the same line as their military have been operating, then you're talking about CubeSats and all these being the key to guiding information. It could just as easily be someone sitting with a smartphone not too far from the harbour well, sending a message. And, and no, that is my point. Um, the data points are now so much more of a, you know, so, so overwhelming. Okay, so, you know... Um, the Black in, Sea is a very confined yeah, what, space. The Black Sea what, is what did it take, useful, what did it take? Yeah, but, but it's a confined space. Graph, what did it take for the Grouch Bay? It took you know, a couple of phone calls, um, you know, out of the, the harbour it ran into, you know, into the river plate. So, you know, that's that's that was enough. That was just a couple of data points that we were able to you know, help the British Navy understand. The fact that the, the cruisers on. were already chasing into yeah, the river yeah, plate yeah, kind but, of helped. Yeah. They were already there waiting off the river plate. It basically confirmed but, which harbour it went into, the, but they the were point, already waiting there but for As it. you're saying, as you're saying, if that happened now, it wouldn't just be a couple of phone calls plus a cruisers out of sight around the corner. It would be thousands of social media posts from smart mm. from smartphone photos and from live television and video video streaming the lot all backed up corroborated and refined by and transmitted and rebroadcast by those things that are zipping over the top so it's not just the cube sets but it's it is the sats that are making this possible because how do these social media things get flashed around the world Largely by you know your internet um, capable um, satellite broadcast. Largely by it's undersea not, it's cables. Just, it's not just the largely by undersea cables. Let's be honest. Most yeah. of the data oh, yeah. does go by yeah. undersea cables, not right. by satellites. I know so, that is the that is the yeah. thing which like a lot of people like to talk about it's, the satellites it's changing quickly. Cool. It's changing no, quickly. it's not changing yes, as is. quickly as the, it, it is. It's not so, as quickly as it, 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 it is. No. <laughs> No, well, the thing the thing is, it's got to change quickly because, as has been recently demonstrated, your um your undersea cables as a World War One lesson, snippy de snippy. Yes, this is the th this is the thing. Everyone and, and, and people are now aware of that, and that's why the, the satellite yeah. thing is a thing. Okay? Yeah, it's, and, and, yeah, it's, and not, this... it's not just Starlink we're talking about here. No, just about... It, you've got to take into account the fact that you know. One, in war, most of the rules go out the window. And two, um, even if you're in not in war, even if you're just in a time of heightened tension, I think a lot of people have fallen into the trap of assuming that everybody has roughly the same values as, you know, their insert home country here, you know, the or or cultural group. And to be perfectly honest, you know, a lot of the time these days, the way people go on and on and on about, oh, this is, uh, you know, critical infrastructure. This is, you know, this involves human rights, etc. As if it's some kind of magic spell, like, um, 
like when you know when Nord Stream was blown up and you had uh um Ursula van der Leyen saying, Oh, this is an attack on European on the on the European Union's energy infrastructure. It's like and well, apart from the fact, as we pointed out, they didn't actually own it. Gazprom did. So if the if the Russians blew it up, they're blowing up their own property, technically speaking. But even if so, what does grandstanding on TV accomplish? I mean, it's after the fact anyway. But even if they'd got you know some kind of intelligence that this was going to happen, standing up in front of a TV screen and going, "Oh well, an attack on uh, this pipeline would be an attack on the European Euro European Union's energy infrastructure and would cause untold hardship to countless civilians and would be completely immoral and illegal." It's like, and you expect that to what change their minds? What was it uh, today? <laughs> I think um, I think it was um, the Wagner Group sent a um, embossed hammer. To um, uh, I think it was the European Union's Parliament yeah. as a after they were declared a um a terrorist group. Yeah, um, it's just like in reference the, to the to the hammer execution. So yeah, the, the, but the and, people uh, are people on the other side don't, aren't going to care. You you can't cast yeah. this magic spell and say you know well because this would contravene our human rights. You can't do it. It's like and and so and, uh, and again so, so things this, don't the, exist. The, the Chinese the Chinese are so the, worried about. The Chinese are so worried about the potential of being spied on all the time, mm. which they are, and we're getting photographs of their new nuclear silos being built mm. in the deepest, darkest deserts of uh, Xinjiang. Mm. Um, you know, these the submarines being constructed. Yeah. They've done simulations on detonating nukes in low Earth orbit in, and to see, um, you know, how much damage that would do to all the uh, satellites going around up there. And basically, they blank out a 400,000 square kilometre block of sky. Mm. Won't kill anyone on the ground. It might blind a few people who are looking in the wrong direction at the right time. Mm. It'll irradiate a whole lot of um, stuff in space, which will, of course, kill it. Mm. Um, and being low Earth orbit, it'll only stay up there for a few centuries, not for thousands of years. Yeah, but but again, this is one of the things. Is like if someone in the West proposed, you know, let's let's put a five megaton nuke, uh, two hundred miles above London and detonate it to. You know, clear, clear the Western European skies of enemy observation. You'd have people crying left, right, and centre that you know for uh, probably three thousand reasons why it shouldn't be done. A good chunk of which are probably quite valid, um, but it would just be you know it would be bogged down with everybody protesting about it. And the Chinese, whereas the Chinese are just like, we'll do it. Um, this, this, end this, of this discussion, is, but again, <laughs> but again, this comes back to the whole point of why do we fight anyway? And that's mm. because you have different because you have different values. But that, but, but that aside, mm. we'll wrap now, this now. We're, we've been on this one for an hour. We'll wrap yeah, it now. I, I, we'll move on, on to the, the next satellites subject. versus cables things. We will move on to. But I want satellites cables. I went to looking for some uh, facts and figures because yes. I do realize you now. Here is the thing: the new Apollo cable which Vodafone are laying, and they have announced they're laying after all this, all this stuff going, mm. is capable of four tetrabits per second across the Atlantic. Mm. That's one of about 100 cables now running across the Atlantic. Good for Vodafone. I'm sorry, I realise, I, I, I know oh, no. Elon Musk and these people are very good marketers, yeah. but no, the cables are a lot cheaper. Right. They can carry a lot more data. They're going to continue to carry roughly 98 to 99% of the volume of data. Right, right up until Boris with his Lasharic deep sea submarine <laughs> and, uh, and a 50 quid B&Q hydraulic claw just goes snip. Yes, <laughs> but at that point, we're not going to have the data moving around. That's yeah. the thing. 
And that, well, that's, satellites... yeah, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? It's and, like you better invest again, in something comes... that's not a cable. It, it comes back make... to yeah, my... but satellites aren't exactly a panacea for that either. You can no. take out a satellite. And I'm not talking about thing. panaceas. I'm not talking about panaceas. We're talking about multiple channels now. Yes, talking. you can shut down any of the channels, and I don't think... I, that the, oh, the, it costs I don't... more to do some than others. Yeah. It costs yes, a lot more. It costs a lot more to get to take out a, a global satellite communications constellation than it does to go and snip a bunch of fiber optic cables. And also, you know, the other thing, um, if you really, really need more data throughput, then getting more data throughput on your satellite communication network is "quote unquote" as simple as lobbing a bunch more satellites into the sky. You can build. A bunch of satellites you can have them pre-stored and you can relatively speaking within a few weeks or months loft a bunch of new ones into orbit so you can expand your constellations capabilities which are much harder to disable in the first place relatively quickly if someone goes down into the middle of the atlantic and goes nice four tetrabit cable snip you're stuffed because you ain't a you ain't replacing that in a hurry that thing will have taken weeks to lay if not months um, you can't just weld the thing back together like the old school telegraph cables. You have to basically replace huge sections of it. And you've got to send out a very, a very vulnerable cable laying ship. So, you know, in the event of a you know, full on war, um, you know, fortunately, space bases tend to be deep in home territory and or relatively well defended. So in the event of an actual war, I think the satellite communication systems are going to be, yes, they'll be less capable, but they will have some capability in them. Whereas if you want to go full on peer peer conflict, you just flat out won't have the undersea cables. And the thing um, about the undersea cables is, is they all converge on the same point on the yes. coast anyway. But I mean, that's look, why again, the shedding we'll, Cornwall we'll, was the most powerful we'll, communications hub in World War One. <laughs> we'll, uh, like I said, I'll, I'll wrap it up. I mean, my point is this is that there is no such thing as a horizon anymore. Mm. And just as you were saying a minute ago about how there are so many people in, you know, the Russian ports with smartphones, mm. which meant that any of those ships would be photographed in intimate detail the moment they passed over the horizon into that port. Well, now the equivalent of those smartphones are now zipping around or have the potential to be zipping around in orbit. So that you know, not even the smartphone horizon exists anymore. So um, that, I think has dramatic and unexplored consequences for any any surface vessel operation now getting back to Although the next getting getting to onto a related subject getting getting onto the related subject can those surface vessels do anything about it and why the hell don't you actually build them for, with it as opposed to building them for god don't get me started well, um, no that's the whole point I am, the point is to get you started it's a, it's a case of again it's the whole thing is if you were having this conversation after i i, I started thinking about this if i was having this conversation with someone in 1910s in the uk and i was going oh yeah we're gonna build this ship we're gonna build a battleship okay it's going to be our... Because, let's be honest, the number of ships we're building now, they might as well be battleships, but they're not. They're frigates. Uh, and uh, what I'm going to do is it's going to have the space for uh, four 15-inch turrets, but I'm only going to put in one 15-inch turret with two guns. So, you know, like the it's got the space, 
So therefore, I'm going to call this a fully French battleship because it's got the space for eight 15-inch guns. I'm going to call I'm it only Dido, fitting I'm, I'm going to call it a Dido class general purpose fr- uh, cruiser. Yeah, all sorts of things. And you sit there and go. They were built for um, 10 5.25s and were completed with, with how many? <laughs> Usually eight as a rule. And some of and, them were 4.5s. So, yeah. And to be fair, no, they usually completed with the five, uh, with the 5.25s. Well, yeah. There, were, there weren't 4.5 turrets going around. Those were going on the battles and no, on no, the no, carriers. Charybdis Ch- 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 and Cirrus. Not Cirrus. Scylla. Charybdis and Scylla. And Scylla. They were completed with 4.5s because they didn't have enough 5.25s. I mm. thought they were complete with 4s, not 4.5s. Uh, 4.5s. Mm. Okay. You're going to have to do a video on it to inform yourself. Mm. <laughs> I will have to. Honestly, a nice yes, way. I mean, there's enough right, weird I mean, stuff going on around about the Dido's that, frankly, if I do a, crew, a video on the Dido's, it's going to spend me the whole time going on, this was the most stupid design the British ever came up with in a cruiser. I managed <laughs> to avoid it so far because it will sound sarcastic and rude. The entire way through, but leave that to yes. one side. Okay, so would would you ever build an Iowa class battleship with three triple turrets and only put one sixteen inch gun in each turret? No, no. Why not? <laughs> would save you money. It'd be stupid. That's the reason why. It's the same with this one. It will save you money, but it won't. Sa- it's a case of oh, we'll fit them in wartime. <laughs> really. So when war comes, the enemy's going to wait around for you to take your battleship into harbour, take a few weeks refitting out the guns, training the crews to operate in a free gun turret, and uh, then come out to sea. No, if they're sensible, they're going to have their battleship, which has got all eight of its guns or nine of its guns or whatever in the guns it's got, sitting there going, hello, I hear you've only got three. Okay. Welcome to a massacre. So, um, just just so that Sal knows, um, I'm, I'm going to engage in a, yet, yet a bit more uh, mutually assured disparagement here, not oh, of America. <laughs> but why not build yourself? Why not design yourself a oh I don't know, twelve gun, twelve fourteen inch gun uh, warship with three turrets, and make one of them two, hold two instead of four. Because let, let's put it this way: we have been over this before. Chatfield Thank is. King George the Fish. Chatfield <laughs> is strange. Okay. Uh, what uh, we're as saying I said is... before, Chatfield is the only first sea lord known to mankind to accept that he wasn't allowed to be in charge of building anything or have any say on any other ship being designed at the time so he could get through his dream battleships. And in so return, can, so the first can sea say... lord turned around and said, I'm building everything else. So we can say that the Royal Navy pioneered the concept of building for but not with. Well, to be fair, that was under the treaty limitations, but yes. But also, let's be honest, it would be far more sensible to fit them with three, with nine 15-inch 50s in three triple turrets and then gone with that. But, you know, we'll leave that to one side. That would be the sensible... So what's, what's the modern... What's the latest fallout, then? What's the latest example of the fiasco? We have Belgium. We have... I think it's it's Japan. Um, uh, J- Japan is the one which is causing um, us most interest at the moment because Japan is a country which quite literally has a well a power breathing down its throat uh, it's no it, it's throat and in fact the, the main articles for this are actually on Chinese websites where the Chinese are going why are they doing this in fact some Chinese newspapers seem to think that the the Japanese must have a secret weapon system they're installing instead because that's the only thing that makes sense rather than 
doing this with their ship. So, so we're talking. So we're talking about their Megami class um, version of a littoral combat ship. Yes, it's a small frigate. Yes. And so again, it's a case of built for, but not with. In terms of its, this is its air defense missiles, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, the Megami's on paper. In the East they're supposed sea. to have a five-inch gun, so they've got that. Yeah. They've got eight surface-to-surface missiles. They've got those and a CRAM installation, some ASW torpedoes. No, they're um, supposed to have eight surface-to-surface uh, missiles, but they only have four. The, no, the, no they're, they're supposed to have a 16 cell Mark 41. Yeah, they only have four cells. No, no, they've got eight. The Belgians who are fitting four instead of eight. Yes, I think I think there's there's a mistake in one of the headlines for those for those articles. Um, mm-hmm. So, but cause, because of you know each of those cells could be quad packed mm-hmm. as well. But, yeah, uh, range so, stuff, so, so the so the upshot is is that this Megami class frigate. Which that you know doesn't have its, which only has limited capability. Admittedly, mm-hmm. though, it's a nice rounded capability. But um, yeah, well, where are they going to get these from when they suddenly need them? And where's Belgium going to get them from? Tell us about the Belgian frigate. Then. Where's the Type Forty Five? No. Well, I mean, the, the Belgians no. and the the Dutch share a design of frigate. Um, it's literally exactly the same hull, exactly the same weapons fit. But the um, the Dutch went. We're going to have two uh, Mark Forty One clusters. Side by side, and the Belgians, teach, yeah, yeah, and the Belgians, for reasons best known to themselves, decided we're not going to have one of them, and just plated it over. And um, we're not which, going to, we're not going to buy them and keep them in storage. We just going makes to it look asymmetric. We need them. apart from anything else, which makes it look ugly. But never mind. <laughs> so yes, I mean, yeah, where where are they going to get them from when they need them? Because well, this is the thing. Everyone, the too. thing that fascinates me is that it, almost everyone seems to be you know, even the Type Forty Fives. Know, theoretically, uh, should have Mark 41s. You've got the Belgians, you've got the... They're the... now getting C-Scepters fitted, though, which is kind of an admittance that, no, we're not going to get them. We were never going to be able to get them from anywhere. So actually, what we're going to do is we're going to fit old BLS cells from Type 23s when they go off. Which so they have C-Scepters. the Type 31s in the first place, but never mind. So where they're going to get their stuff from, no one knows. But who And, and the Type 26s were supposed to... It's like Everyone was supposed to get the uh, C-Scepters off Hand of the downs. Type 23s. But, you know, it seems that everybody and their dog is fitting for but not with Mark 41s, which means that, you know, if war breaks out, just exactly how quickly can Lockheed build Mark 41 cells? It, I think it's a very example of very, very narrow-minded thinking where they're kind of thinking, we're the only people who are doing this. So, therefore, when war comes, we will be able to just go, yes, we will have some more. And it's like, no, if Lockheed... a big war comes, everyone's going to want some. And, and of course, Lockheed Martin's uh, so um, generous and uh, forward thinking that uh, it's, it's going to build a whole pile of those uh, systems without being paid for them and store them neatly and carefully for the and next time. Um, could you say the make, make the Mark 41 for less? On the chance, well, I don't know. Hmm? Um, whoever, you know, whoever's um, you know, on, the, on the off chance that someone might actually buy them in the future. So, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't sound like a great business model, does it? I think the Mark 41 is built by... Um, oh, they are built by Lockheed Martin. And also, apparently, BAE are involved in their manufacture as well. That's always fun. Uh, let's see. Where are they built? Let's find their building and constructions. Okay, components are built in. 
Oh my, that's a whole list of places where there's small factories building components of them. Of course, it's an American Let's... weapon system. It has to be built in all 50 states, otherwise it'll never get through bombs. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I think they're trying to go for all Western countries as well as all 50 states by this list. Um, where does the... They only seem to have one final assembly factory. Okay. Your backyard? No. No, mm -hmm. it's in America. Ukraine? Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, gonna, it's okay. Say, it'd be our luck it'd be in Ukraine, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah that would be that. That'd be very sensible. But it's a case of oh my, ay, caramba! It, it just all right. So we, we we can count out those getting their um, VLS cells there. I mean, but aren't you doing it again with um, your harpoon replacement? Um, building ships for anti-surface warfare, but well, they, they've now decided that it's going to be NSM. That was oh, announced hallelujah. earlier earlier today. I think I saw a news article. They're they're getting they're buying naval strike missiles from the Norwegians. So, right. so you're not going to um, go for Exocet? No, apparently. I think I think the Royal Navy still has a PTSD from that <laughs> with that weapon system. Um, even but, though but we surely, have, surely you spend... they have PTSD from procuring that weapon system, let alone from the, it the funny. The funny thing is, actually, I was talking to somebody who was who was in the Falklands War, and he pointed out that actually in the Falklands War, the Royal Navy uh, task force off of the Falkland Islands had more exocets than the Argentinians did. <laughs> it's just they never got a chance to use them. <laughs> Um, so what was I going to say? I mean, surely you could spend billions of dollars on extending the lives of your harpoons. Um, or have you already done that? Or have you already done, done that? that? Okay. Done that. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, harpoon has got long enough in the tooth that even the US is looking to replace them. So, um, I mean, it, NSM is, is a harpoonish scale weapon, but it's a little bit longer range, it's a bit more capable. Um, I mean, heck, he, in a in an extremely bizarre turn of events, even the US has uh, has bought them, <laughs> albeit so, they're they're only sticking should, on their smaller ships. Okay, <laughs> I have finally found. Please let me confirm this. I have finally been able to confirm by four different sources exactly where the Lockheed Martin uh, production facility is for the VLS. And this well, is don't tell everyone. Well, uh, otherwise you'll, you'll uh, have some very it, interested Chinese officials over there with the bribe bunny in about five minutes, followed three minutes later by MI5. Well, the thing is, it's in Baltimore, so in nicest way, they better take big checkbooks and a lot of money because it's in middle, it's at the Middle River facility, Maryland facility in Baltimore. Yeah, so they're, um, they're not that considering that Baltimore is basically a free fires fallout zone for uh, <laughs> much of its urban extent, it, they're probably not going to be able to, to build that many. Good luck trying to bribe them as well. Like 90, <laughs> when I was in the States, when I was thinking, when I was on my way back up oh. the East Coast and the last part of my trip to the States in April, um, and I mentioned this and I was like, oh, well, I might stop over in Baltimore on my way up back up to Boston. <laughs> and 90 percent of everybody I spoke to, whether it was on the East Coast, West Coast or South Coast of the USA, were all like, don't go into Baltimore. You'll get shot. <laughs> I'm, I'm now imagining the, the Mark 41 production facility is this kind of Skynet style, heavily armored bunker with point defense turrets and <laughs> armored troop convoys, which run the, the products out, out into the wider world. Apparently, so they, think... it supplies 150 highly skilled jobs in the Baltimore area and will continue to do so for years to come. Well, only if people buy it as opposed to build However, holes for it. 
I have something more scary for you to know. Guess Maybe. what? B the VLS, of course, is built by Lockheed Martin. Do you know who are designated the design agent for the Mark 41 VLS? Now, Banksy? if you were, who would you if you were had one company building it, who would you select as the design agent for him? For it, I don't know. Apple. Pro you probably say the same again. No, no, they've gone with BAE. Okay, so why the hell are they? Well, that explains why they're so expensive. <laughs> so BAE are designing the man, uh, the mechanical port. Our design agent for the US ends Mark Forty One VLS mechanical portion. But they're built by Lockheed Martin. And they will be doing their work on the VLS systems at Minneapolis in Minnesota. So, look, should mm -hmm. we pool our lunch money mm -hmm. and create a startup to do, build a weapon system to fit in the same dimensions as a eight-tube VLS system and sell it for two-thirds the price? No, anything would be better than just not having it at all. But well, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about your experiments the other day. I mean, is, is this <laughs> with Greek fire, is this a potential <laughs> to, to to bring um, Greek fire back into play? And well, and I mean, if, what, if, and, if, and at the scale of a VLS um, module, hmm. which are there's plenty of empty ones out there. Mm -hmm. What capability can we offer? Well, if we rebuild the Livens projector from World War One and fuel and load it up with Greek fire instead of diesel, I mean, if if and I stress this is a big if if the electronic warfare systems and surface-to-air missile systems, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, of all the various ships work as <laughs> as the people who sell them advertise, then the skies will be a no-fly zone. Everyone will fire their missiles at each other, or they'll all be shot down by other missiles. And you'll Again, be relying the computer on system ramming. is trying to stop him. <laughs> and uh, this is where the ram bows come back into play. Yeah, well, this is the thing. A ram bow is a, is a physical point of contact weapon. So if you have a Livens projector that can chuck Greek fire three, four hundred feet ahead of you, you automatically now have the ranged advantage, which has the additional benefit of the fact you cannot shoot down Greek fire um, and you can't electronically jam Greek fire either. <laughs> Okay, so I'll it will get turn my your electronics into jam. I'll get my crayon. I'll get my crayon set out, and I'll start. Mm. Uh, I'll name myself um, BAE and start designing a system for you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, think about it. We've got, we've already got an HMS Dragon. We could even install a projector <laughs> coming out of the mouth. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> oh, you know, actually, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking this. Actually, the other thing is, this could work as a system. Uh, Actually, it would also make a very interesting missile defense system because if you just put yourself in a, in a nice dome of burning Greek, oh yes, yes, of course. In fact, it's a defensive system as well because what you do is because your projector can obviously rotate, you set fire to a large swathe of the sea in front of you. At which point, you know, there's going to be billowing poisonous toxic smoke, massive leaping roaring flames. <laughs> A missile is going to have a huge issue trying to lock onto it. You fire a few chaff clouds into it, and it's just this massive, broiling, roiling mess of radar and infrared returns with no way to get a visual signal through it either. So if someone fires a missile at you, you know, their thermal sensors aren't going to be worth anything. The chaff should will mess up the radar sensors, and you can't laser guide your way through 
several hundred feet of roaring flames. Now, for, for all of you defence industrial complex people out there listening in on this discussion, just remember Please that I'm Drax, I'm Drax agent, so yes. come to me first <laughs> and I'll take my cut before I um, <laughs> pass you on to him. Yeah. The decoy system, chaff, chaff launching Greek fire barges. It's just like, that, that, that's <laughs> going to be a big target for yourself to lock on to. <laughs> oh, good Lord. But uh, I think I think uh, loop, looping back vaguely to the Mark Forty One system, it actually does show, um, you know, again people cheaping out on things because they're not they're thinking, oh, we don't have to pay for maintenance and we don't have to pay for the missiles to go in them if we don't have the systems, um, so we can run our military on the cheap. Which I, I just bit... seriously have to say, how the hell can they expect to get it when they need it? I mean, no. The, it, the thing it, it is, depends... they don't expect to ever need it. This is the point. Well, either that, or they're expect, or they're expecting that if again go looping back to something else we've said previously, you know, people expect that if they go to war, it'll be a war of their choosing. So they're like, well, you know, we have decided that next summer we are going to go to war with China. So we're going to place our orders for the Mark Forty Ones now, and hope that nobody takes any <laughs> that has any particular interest in why exactly are you choosing now of all times to rearm all of your ships. Um, yeah, you know, and expecting everyone. In the meantime, Lockheed Martin. In the meantime, Lockheed Martin gets back to you to tell you that the order um, times have blown out by ten years because, well, Japan's just one of them. Yeah, and, and Belgium's so ordered a lot of them, and um, so has every other country. That yeah, but <laughs> it, 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 to be honest, I think it, in part it shows again the the fact that people generally are cheaping out on on their navies as a whole because. Um, I, I was running some quick numbers in the background. Well, they're cheaping and, out on all their forces. Let's be honest, the amount of armies which are running around the world with no air defence system <laughs> built into their forces. Yeah, but for the most part, for, for the most part, armies can't get. You know, armies can only invade you if they, you know, if they if uh, you can actually get to the country. And for most places, that involves either going through other countries who tend to have fairly strong armies. But considering we're talking about naval elements of things, yes. Um, most countries that have large navies, you tend to actually have to get through them. It's like you can't invade the UK because we don't have a land border. You can't invade the UK without coming by sea, which means you have to get past the Royal oh. Navy. Japan, Theoretically, is an Ireland, Ireland Australia could invade is the an UK island. without going through the navy. Well, yes, but then a, we'd arrest. Didn't you build a tunnel for that exact reason? <laughs> uh, yeah, if the Irish armed forces try anything, the the, the Northern Ireland police force will just arrest them. Um, you know, the Australia, Australia's an island. Nor the, the USA might as well be because it's not exactly like Canada's going to come knocking anytime soon. Um, no, so far in the history, it's been every time America's gone knocking that Canada has defeated America. But the thing is, like for, for all these countries, you have to come. You have to no, come for by Australia. Sea. They have the emu wars. For America, they have any time they've invaded yeah. Canada for sure. But the um, but like even even for the Chinese, let's face it, the Chinese don't have a land border with anyone who's seriously going to think about invading them. You know, the the so only the Russia, only country that's even got something. They haven't had the best strategic thinking so far. Let's be honest. Yeah, you but, can't really rule out Russia. To be honest. Well, yeah, and then they get lost in lost in the trackless wastes that are the northern Chinese deserts. 
while everyone forgets conveniently that Mongolia exists. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, yeah, India is on Do its own. You want to go and take now, on the Mongolians? But... That's kind of like taking on the Nepalese. You know, it sounds sensible at one point until you realize who you're actually fighting. But the thing is, India's on the southern border of China, technically speaking, but no one's going to move massed armored formations through the Himalayas because no one has no one has the latter day Hannibal. So currently they are beating each other with sticks and stones at last report and between the Well Chinese yes because you're not allowed to have firearms in the Himalayas uh, but you know, it's um you know in all seriousness if you want to go if someone seriously wants to go for China the list of potential threats to land troops in China in all involved countries that would have to come by sea and mm. it's pretty much the same thing for all the all the big big navy countries the threat has to come by sea therefore you need like you you could have almost zero army because if the navy stops them from getting there in the first place there's no land war um the army is more for the expeditionary portion of things um but with that said you know china still does have some land borders so you know china also has to have from a strategic perspective a, a reasonably sized army etc cetera, etc cetera. But uh, in the background, I was running some numbers now. These run on average G average estimate of GDP. So it's, you know, filter that through however many economic factors you want. <laughs> but plugging in what China has built in terms of large, um, large surface and subsurface combatants in the last uh, 22 years, basically taking ships from the very late 90s and early 2000s onwards, ignoring the older stuff. If you put China's fleet against its average estimated GDP, and then you run those numbers for, I've just run numbers for um, Japan and the UK, and then you look at what, therefore, if people were spending roughly the same on the Navy in in those countries as, as they are in China, and compared to what they actually have, the numbers are quite revealing, because... Um, China, sorry, Japan, in theory, should have about 30, 28 to 30 destroyers and frigates um, and about 20-odd corvette-sized vessels, uh, three large amphibs, a couple of ballistic missile subs, a couple of nuclear attack subs, half a dozen um, diesel subs, and a carrier when you compare their economy to china's now the interesting thing is that actually japan does have about 30 destroyers and frigates so they're kind of keeping up with that okay they don't have a corvette fleet but, you know, but neither here nor there they don't have an amphib fleet they do have technically a carrier too now uh, once they re finish refitting but they're small um they don't have any nuclear subs but they do have slightly more um diesel electric subs so there's a little bit of balance there, but whilst Japan is mostly keeping up, in some areas they're not. So Japan, Japan's naval defense spending is slightly behind the curve on China compared to China's, um, assuming they spend the same proportion of their GDP. But it does highlight the fact that Japan can't match China. Uh, unless they go, unless they do something really economically destructive like Japan was doing in the late 1910s and early 1920s. Because if you've only got an economy that's about 
you know, maybe about 25, 30% the size of China's, China can outbuild, they can afford to outbuild you if they want. Um, and then you get to the UK. And going by the same estimates, we should have nine Type 45s. We have six. Uh, we should have about nine large frigates and a, just over a dozen smaller frigates or frigate corvette size things are your type 31s and 32s well we're notionally going to get our eight type 86s um but we ain't getting 13 type 31s and 32s um amphibs we should have two we have two uh bulwark and albion um nuclear ballistic missile subs theoretically we should have one we have four so that's we're we're up on china on that that end of things and then submarines we should have about six which once the astute run is done and the trafalgar's are, are gone is probably about what we're gonna actually end up with um and then carriers in theory compared to china we should have half a carrier and arguably at the moment we probably do <laughs> But we've got two hulls, one of which is broken and the other one has half an air group. So, you know, so it, it, we're slightly ahead of the of what the just the sheer maths would suggest in a couple of areas. But at the same time, China hasn't really invested in its submarine force much until recently, whereas the, sub, the submarine element of the Royal Navy has been a big thing for a very long time. But it's interesting that when you look at the if you go down to purely surface combatants, the destroyers, the frigates, et cetera, et cetera, we're actually well behind where economically speaking we should be. You know, even even if we're just doing it on a hard economy basis. So, yeah. you know, there, there's there's room if we're prepared to be efficient enough in our production and, you know, actually stick to the initial contracts rather than downgrade, 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 and end up paying for pretty much what we would have originally got anyway, um, but not getting as many ships, the Royal Navy could be significantly stronger. But it's not because you know people aren't paying for it, and and that's without getting into comparisons of like does it how does a Type forty five stack up with a Type O fifty five, which is a whole other argument. This is just in terms of whole numbers. So you know, if if, if we're facing problems. When it comes for fitted, fitted for but not with, or you know, just in terms of sheer fleet size, a lot of those problems are just on the fact that the Western countries aren't willing to spend money. Mm -hmm. and, and but the the other the other hand is, we also do not have the money. The Royal Navy cannot go hull to hull, hull for hull, toe to toe with China, because our economy is just under twenty percent the size of China's. The reason that Britain could outbuild everybody in the 19th century and the latter part of the 18th century is because our economy was bigger than everybody else's. We could afford to. And granted, we put, you know, and they get there's again, there's there's balances of how much of your budget you actually put in. You know, if a, if you are, let's say, comparing two economies, the UK and France, you know, we're within shouting distance of each other economy wise. Now, Britain, in theory, should have a considerably larger force than the Marine Nationale because we should be prioritizing the Navy more because we're an island. Um, but, uh, you know, France needs an army, which has been one of France's historical issues. The UK, the French had much greater population and at points had a greater economy, but we still had a larger Navy going back into the early part of the 18th century and before because we basically had almost no army 
we just focused all the funding into the Navy. But that's the kind of balance you can strike when your economies are within shouting distance of each other, not when your economy is one fifth the size. Mm, yeah. And which brings us back to how do you get the most bang for your buck? Mm. And do you get that by building for but not with? No, because oh. that gives you no bang for your buck. It gives you a theoretical bang. It gives you a theory, but it doesn't actually give you an actual bang until you spend that money. So it's not really saving. It gives really you a, a feel-good. It gives you mm. a feel-good. Yeah. Because it's yeah. something you can point at and say, we've got this, but it's actually a hollow, <laughs> now, <laughs> hollow promise. I'm going to say this. I know we've got other things we wanted to cover today, but we have been running slightly long. Mm. And I think we're about nearly an hour and 30 minutes. About uh, yeah, just over that actually. <clears throat> yeah, so I thought actually what we'll do is we'll finish off with something else because someone's just commented on my channel. I know we haven't prepared for this, but they've they've commented with Dr. Clark, here's my idea on what a replacement would be for the Duke of Edinburgh class, Warrior class, and Minotaur class replacements. The Drakenfell class. They would have a length of 176 meters, a width of 20.8 meters, draft of 7.4 meters, a speed of 28 knots provided by geared turbines, a range of 6,700 miles at 14 knots, four twin 9.4 inch guns, two super firing turrets forward and two super firing turrets aft, eight five inch guns, four on each side behind shields, 12 76 millimeter guns, four 21 inch submerged torpedo tubes, armor would be deck 2.5 to 3 inches, belt 4 to 6 inches, barbette 7 to 7.78 inches, uh, turrets 8 inches, conning tower 8 inches, and torpedo valkyards. Now, gentlemen, the reason I'm asking about this is, Drac, how do you feel about your namesake class? And Jamie, let's take the piss out. That sounds like the hood. <laughs> sounds like the hood. It's, it's a 9.2 inch hood. I think, I, think this is I think this is based on the fact, that I think this is based on, uh, probably based on a question uh, that was in a dry dock a week or two ago where somebody asked, uh, um, what was the question? The question was basically, um, what would armored cruisers look like if the battle cruisers never been built? Kind of what's the next generation of armored cruiser? Mm. And the, you know, the short answer was Blucher because that was basically what Blucher was. Blucher was an actual dreadnought armored cruiser. Invincible yeah. was a, an armored cruiser with dreadnought guns stuck on it. Um, so at that point, I came up with, I actually, I drafted up a design that sounds suspiciously similar to that, which took the Minotaur class as a, as a base um, and with taking some themes from Invincible and went, okay, well, what would happen if we built a 9.2 inch armored cruiser instead, a kind of Blucher style? Um, I ended up actually with one with 10 guns, but that's because I laid it out almost like a miniature version of Dreadnought itself with wing with wing turrets largely on the basis why of the... would you go for wing turrets well this was the thing. it's like in theory you get the same broadside and more efficiency from having two pairs fore and aft which you know that that's a better thing but at the same time you also start looking like a slightly overgrown 20 year earlier county class at that point and whilst it makes a lot of sense and it could be done i in the context of the question of you know 1905 1906 i didn't feel comfortable with saying this is exactly what they have built because it would it seemed to me gifting a few too many gifts from hindsight whereas you know if you go if someone's going well we build we need to build a dreadnought armored cruiser if someone went here's dreadnought well why don't we do dreadnought slightly smaller slightly less well armored with 9.2 inch guns but faster that's the kind of thing you could actually imagine someone in 1906 doing rather than building a you know a treaty a 
an overgunned, overweight treaty heavy cruiser 20 years ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's in, uh, from a historical perspective, it could be built. It would be eminently sensible for it to be built, but it would also, to my mind, be a little bit, it's, it's a little bit too much of pushing the, uh, you know, all centerline turrets are brilliant narrative in the Royal Navy maybe a few years earlier than they realistically historically would have actually gone for it because you know they, see, they stuck with the wing turrets for, they stuck with the wing turrets for all of the 12 inch gun ships if you'd said this was a u.s navy ship for a u.s navy armored cruiser for 1906 given that they all of their dreadnoughts were all centerline gun turrets then yeah i'd say yep absolutely spot on plausible um but for the 1900s Royal Navy to go yes on a large vessel we're going to go all center line I would say if it was 1909 1908 mm. uh, 1909 maybe as a sort of proto before the Orions because they were all sort of mm-hmm. weren't they yes so I'd say if just if you just if you were building one if you suddenly started going well hang on next generation of battle cruisers are going to be that much bigger that we need to start having armor cruisers again and the next generation of battleships are the center line vessels, then I could see this vessel appearing. And hmm. um, but why is this relevant to a modern discussion? And Jamie's going, Oh, this can't be relevant to modern discussion. Well, the thing is, no, I'm not. What ships are being what ships have we stopped building at the moment that you think we're gonna have to start building again soon? Or we should be building. Because I know me and Drac are very much in our type 83 will be a massive super cruiser and we'll have everything. So we need more monitors we need more ships period i mean yeah we do (laughs) we're 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 building we're building the 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 grab bag of we're we're basically doing a poundland raid (laughs) um look i mean yeah what ifs you all know what i think about that Mm. Um, i know i don't but 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 why do I think that it's, you know, relevant? Well, because it's what we do all the time here with bulge pups. We try and take what we know about now and project it into the future. Um, and one way you can learn the factors that you need to consider for that is to look at a what-if scenario involving a centerline mm. firing 9.2-inch gun um, dreadnought era battle cruiser or heavy armored, armored cruiser so it it does actually have value um yeah. but where, where where i get burnt is you know not burnt it get discouraged is is um the way that people sort of end up convincing themselves that uh, there is a be all and end all answer um when as drag no. says it's it's always a product of um, hindsight and hypotheticals um but that's exactly what, what, what are we doing now when we're talking about um you know, um, our Greek fire defended um, uh, Type 26. Well, it's uh, hindsight and um, hypotheticals, isn't it? It's looking mm-hmm. at what we looking at what we've learned in the past and trying to figure out the things that disrupted them back then and how that scales to the modern era. So um, there's always there, there is a value in it as long as you don't take it too seriously. Just like you don't take build pumps too seriously. Yep. <laughs> Mind you, take Drax Greek Fire um, idea very seriously, please, mm-hmm. and I'll be I'll be one of your first uh, share, shareholders. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what I'll exchange in return for um, some of the, the script, but yeah, 
We'll see. Here we go. <laughs> maybe I maybe I can sue you for some of the IP. I don't know. <laughs> Shares in Drax oh. service uh, coming soon. Oh, oh, good lord! Good lord! Oh. All right. And in, the, and in the meantime, um, Drac. Oh, sorry. In the meantime, Doctor Clark can think of um, countermeasures for Greek fire. I am just gonna buy a foam system from an airport. What? Not, not, oh, why wow. not an ice cream? Why not an ice cream truck? A fire truck with foam dispenser from an airport won't work. work. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> I tried when I accidentally set fire to the kitchen during um, pre <laughs> experiments. Foam, foam. I actually that reminds you me. You know, there, there might be a reason why. Why I, 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 am I not mistaken in that Mrs. Drac has gone away while you're doing this? Yes. Actually, I'm just gonna go over <laughs> here, and before I forget, I need to add to my list of things I need to replace. Um, CO2 fire extinguisher. Mrs. Drac might listen to this. CO2 fire extinguisher, powder extinguisher. Foam <laughs> extinguisher, fire blanket. Um, none of these were successful. <laughs> and I thought I had a well-equipped home ready for to deal with anything. I mean, the only thing I've literally the only fire extinguisher I have left that's unspent, um, should anything go wrong in the interim in this house, is a water-based one. Because even I wasn't dumb enough to try and use a water-based <laughs> fire extinguisher on the Greek fire. Also, I need a new tablecloth and possibly a new table. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's not as bad as we predicted. We were, we were, we were, we were expecting you to need not only a new house, but perhaps I a new the, arm, I, perhaps a new leg, and uh, maybe maybe some um, prosthetic I the eye. Sofa and... made up just in case he needed accommodations for the night. And while they sorted out the damage to the house. Yeah, well, the other thing I also need is new gloves, because at one point I was also, after, after multiple things had failed, I was also dumb enough. I don't know entirely why this entered my head, but I was like, maybe I should try and pat it out. Fortunately, I was sent, I, I'd, my previous sensible Drac brain had actually purchased ceramic fireproof gloves, so I didn't burn my hand off. But I did have to very rapidly and delicately remove one of said gloves and add it to the pile of other things that were on fire. Uh, <laughs> and it needs to be replaced. <laughs> yes, it needs to be replaced. Also, the, yeah, in terms of other things that need to be, be replaced, the thing that successfully saved the house, a two-litre bottle of vinegar. <laughs> so if you come to my kitchen right now, it looks like a slightly charred, char well, smells like a slightly charred chip shop. Um, I think we better. We, we I think we, this is the point we, we, we at which we end. Yeah, this. I think we better end it now before before we before we um, start seeing those blue lights flashing through um, Drax's windows there in the background. Yeah, these are the things that don't make it to camera, folks. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. That's okay. it. That's it for Bye. our build. Bye. Welcome to the bilge pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout 